0: Hey there, ass kickers. Resident historian Doug Kent Crispin. I don't know if you heard, but Kickass Oregon History is one of the six finalists for the Willamette Week's Best of Portland contest in the podcast division. And we really want to win, but we're going up against some great shows, so we need your help to win. So if you could, go over to our website, orhistory.com, and click on the Willamette Week banner, or just type in orhistory.com slash vote, and you'll be directed to the Willie Weeks page. We are under the personalities slash media section. Voting is open until June 30th, so please, please vote for us now. And also, please vote for our friends at Eastside Distilling and xray.org. FM. They do a lot to help this program. So again, orhistory.com slash vote, personalities slash media, vote for kick-ass Oregon history like today. And if we win, we will host a free big ol' appreciation party with history and music and just buckets full of fun. So again, thank you, thank you, thank you. Please, please vote. And here's your fucking podcast.
1: It is June, 2015, and the resident historian has been reading about Bigfoot. This is some Kick-Ass Oregon History. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host Andy Lindbergh and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kink Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORhistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORhistory.com and click Donate.
0: This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and this is another episode of the Kick-Ass Book Club. And it's my favorite book club I've ever been in because I get to choose all the books we read. No more selections about some 40-something divorcee wandering the world to find their happy place. It's just solid books about Oregon history. We interview the authors that write these books and present them with probing questions about why their books should be in the Oregon Argosy. And we'd like to encourage you to ask them, too. Just go on our Facebook, our Twitter, or email us your questions for your favorite authors, and we just might ask yours. Just a few weeks ago,
1: Bigfoot researchers Joe Bielert and Cliff Olson released their new book, The Oregon Bigfoot Highway. The publication of this selection has been much anticipated by the Bigfoot community. In fact, so anticipated that Joe and Cliff were featured presenters at Hopsquatch, an
0: event hosted by the Bigfoot Lunch Club. This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and I am with Guy Edwards of the Bigfoot Lunch Club right now, and uh, we're chatting about this amazing event that's going on right down in northwest Portland at the Lucky Lab. Uh, Guy, what is the Bigfoot Lunch Club?
2: Uh, Bigfoot Lunch Club is really a news news source for Bigfoot news. Um, It's been around for eight years. When I first started it, there was no Bigfoot blogs dedicated specifically to Bigfoot. And I try to aggregate all the news around the world. And uh, it's kind of my philosophy in the Bigfoot world to be inclusive. And so that's what Bigfoot Lunch Club is all about. And uh, that's what this event that I'm, that Bigfoot Lunch Club does, Hopsquatch, is about.
0: So yeah, tell us about Hopsquatch. I mean, it's amazing the lineup of presenters that you get every month. It is truly amazing. This is top-notch folks.
2: Thank you, absolutely. I'm, I'm very proud of the people we've been able to bring in uh, uh, from academics to people who've been doing this for years and years of Bigfoot research. Uh, this is the stuff that you can't find on the internet. You really have to come face-to-face and meet these people. But again, it's an inclusiveness. So uh, uh, many people might not know that there are people that uh, will actually come to fisticuffs when it comes to uh, their ideas about Bigfoot research, uh, whether it's kill or no kill debate, whether Bigfoot's a human or an animal. Um, so I want to make sure that if you think Bigfoot's an alien, come in. If you think Bigfoot's a biological creature, come in. If you think we need a specimen and we need to have a body, come on in. Everybody's welcome to Hopsquatch and that's kind of the environment that I'm trying to foster here.
0: Where can people find out about Bigfoot Lunch Club and Hopsquatch?
2: Okay, Bigfoot Lunch Club is easy. Bigfootlunchclub.com, Facebook.com slash Bigfoot Lunch Club, and Hopsquatch with two S's.com. Uh, you'll find out about our monthly events, and we update it the first of every month. Thanks, Guy. Thank you.
1: The resident historian sat down with Joe Beelert to chat about the book.
0: Well, thanks a lot, Joan. We appreciate you uh, coming in today and chatting with us about your book, uh, The Oregon Bigfoot Highway, which of course you co-authored with uh, Cliff Olson. So let's just go ahead and start right from the top. Um, Oregon has a rich heritage of Bigfoot sightings, but when you look In the national press today, we seem to get a little bit less airtime than some of the other places. Now, I I found a list from philly.com. They have the top 20 states for Bigfoot sightings. And a lot of this is taken from BFRO Research, which is the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization. Now, they list Washington and California higher than Oregon, which, of course, I can accept. But then they've got Ohio, Illinois, in Florida, and I, I'm just not buying it. I think Oregon is kind of one of the places for Bigfoot. What do you think of that?
3: Well, I think Oregon is one of the big places for Bigfoot, but Oregon is kind of uh, Oregon resembles a small child, where it believes the universe revolves around it. And on the other hand, the universe looks at Oregon like a small child because it's cute, it's pretty, it's innocent. But it knows that the, 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 the that it revolves around something bigger than than somebody in Oregon reporting
0: uh, reporting Bigfoot. about bigfoots yeah, on a goddamn walking, podcast, yeah,
3: <laughs> walking across the road in front of them. Uh, and and uh, functionally, it has a lot of people a lot to do. I believe with functionally, I believe it has a lot to do with populations and the wish to see. And back east, there's a lot of people that just plain don't have mountains. They don't see mountains. They don't know what mountains are about. Uh, Yet they see there very well could be a population of them back there. All you have to do is go to Google Earth and look down. Uh, I I have no doubts in my mind. But uh, uh, I think that we are a a state of, uh, what, 7 million people? Yeah, I think a little less, but uh, yeah, 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 less yeah, than that. Yeah, yeah. you know, and we—it's very expansive state, so there's fewer reports, and uh, I think people are a bit more conservative here, especially people that are out in the out in the woods. So many reports don't go on on go on record, and that's what this book is really about. Uh, I'm the scribe of this book. Cliff Olson is a mentor. Cliff lived in the heart of the forest at a Portland general electric power project for 13 years. He got to know United States forest service people, of course his co-workers, many loggers, and there was a vast number of reports that these people knew about and and that were never surfaced. I have I believe four or five forest service reports in this book The people didn't want their names used, but they were referred to me by Cliff. I, I, it was a a, a almost astounding pleasure to to write down what they had to say. The Oregon Bigfoot Highway is a 70 mile stretch of forest road between the logging towns of Estacada and Detroit, Oregon. Although Detroit, the big mill there has been shut down and shipped to Siberia. there is uh, two little pockets, two very small pockets of population in it, uh, one near Ripplebrook uh, Guard Station and uh, another at the Brighton Bush Resort. Other than that, it is, it is, it is about 800 square miles of the, of the Clackamas uh, Ranger District. That's empty of, except for drive-in people and in about another 300 square miles of the Brighton Bush Ra- Ranger uh, River drainage. Adjacent, just to the west, is Bull of the Woods Wilderness and Opal Creek Wilderness. So this is a, a tremendous opportunity to preserve a big part of our forest and turn it into a, in, into a tourism mecca.
1: At the Hopsquatch presentation, Joe talked a bit about Bigfoot tourism and his desire to set up a Sasquatch preserve.
3: In the back of my mind, all through this book, and when you read it, you'll probably maybe even see it, I was thinking some sort of national preserve well past the stage of a forest service, uh, uh, national forest. A preserve that would be developed into a major tourist attraction, probably with an international Appeal, there's a, Portland International is roughly 65 miles away from the entrance, the Estacada entrance to this area. Uh, And we all know that the national for, the national, the national parks are extremely pressured all year long now, any that are open. Okay, this is, this is not a casual uh, observation, this is the truth. And, all, and a national, and an attraction of this nature generates tourism. Tourism generates many more dollars per square mile than any other use of that type of land, in addition to being the nature preserve. This book is not about convincing people that Bigfoot exists. They do exist. They're rare. They're not really Bigfoot. They're Sasquatch in the native tradition is best words although there's a wide number of native words to, to describe them. But they're up there, and they need, if they're hominid, which they probably are, there's, they'll need a reservation for a word that's not a very good word, but a reservation. If they're pongoid or monkey-like, and there's strong evidence there is a small population of monkey-like creatures up there, they'll need a preserve. So... By taking the Mount Hood National Forest and parts of the Willamette National Forest, combining them with the wilderness areas, you're making a a wonderful sanctuary for unclassified animals that we can only hope will actually come out and make themselves known to science. Uh, so that's the Bigfoot Highway. So is 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 right through the heart of of. Uh, of this uh, forested area, it's uh, easily broken down by watersheds and by natural mountain ranges, ridge lines. It breaks down into six geographic areas. Within each of those geographic areas, this book is will have mileage markers. Don't confuse the mileage markers in this book with mileage, uh, official mileage markers. These are just to let you as you drive along. You can see where you're at. Uh, Amazingly enough, a gentleman, Steve Lindsay, one of our uh, Clackamas Sasquatchians, he has gone through and charted every single GPS coordinate in this book, and there's a lot of them. And he's also charted the mileage markers on the main and side roads. So even if you're using Google Earth, and you want to see where where I made a note, It's available to you.
0: Now, uh, in your book, you've got a couple of really good photos of one of the stone heads that's in the collection at the Mary Hill Museum. And uh, I had an opportunity to actually take a look at it in in the past when it was on display. It's not always on display, but it's in their collection there. And uh, it's fantastic. It, It seems to portray a very defined sagittal crest. Now, tell our listeners a little bit about that
3: head. Well, that's interesting you ask that. Uh, For many years, I had responsibilities in eastern Washington and eastern Oregon. And I would stop in at the Mary Hill Museum, especially on Friday afternoons when I was coming back. And I first saw this head probably in 1993 or 94, perhaps earlier. And at that time, it was sitting. They placed it in a corner display case with two layers of plastic over it uh, Vine or you know transparent uh, shielding, and it's very difficult to take a photograph of it. And they listed it as a, a sheep's head or a mountain goat head. Uh, since it's Native American, uh, that's you know a very rational explanation. The Mary Hill Museum, for people that don't know it, is just an absolutely wonderful, spectacular exhibit of Native American culture. There is, and has been, and that's one reason why I talked to a curator at the museum, there was, even at the time when they obtained the specimen, a feeling that it represented a non-classified hominid. And if you look at it, the horns, the so-called horns, are not pronounced at all. Uh, What is pronounced are the lips and the mouth and the eyes, and... uh, the sagittarial crest. And if all you have to do is look on the internet and you'll see that, uh, the rams and, uh, mountain sheep and many, uh, horned animals don't have a Sagittario. They've got a reinforced head, but it's not a sagittarial crest.
0: So you don't entertain that idea at all that it's a mountain goat or, or something.
3: Like I, that. I, I, I certainly allow it because, uh, I would suspect a Native American elder told them what it was, uh, so you've got to respect that. But uh, where these pictures were taken, Mary Hill Museum finally relinquished and loaned this head to the Washington Historical Society at, in Olympia, and these were taken with, a, at the time, a 3-megapixel camera uh, at the society, and it was listed very clearly, and I've got a photograph of the plaque that was with it as being a... Uh, Uh, a representation of a non-classified primate. Uh, And since it was produced far, it was produced about five, possibly 600 years ago, maybe it's more recent than that, but it was certainly produced before the coming of the white men. In my estimation, it is a very good primitive likeness by a Native American artist with the tools and the crafting abilities they had to work with stone of a, of a Sasquatch head.
0: Now, of course, we uh, at Kick-Ass Oregon History look at Oregon stories in the past, and you have some phenomenal uh, depictions and illustrations and case studies of of encounters that you have had yourself. But let's let's look back further. And what is the oldest Bigfoot encounter or incident that you portray in the book?
3: Well, it's amazingly enough, this pop, this one. Popped up in the very first or second. I think the Safari Club is the first reference. The second is Millie Kiggins, and Millie Kiggins is now about 90, in her early 90s, lives on a family uh, farm uh, to the uh, to the south of Estacada, on the west side of the river, and her family has a long history of being in the area. The the earliest reasonable report that we have from above Estacada comes from Millie Kagan's father and brothers and in 1911 they found a series of tracks near a Simon's salmon spawning ground on the South Fork in a place called I believe it's Jacob's Ladder it's a biblical term that's very steep there and uh, these tracks were found in 1911 and this is well known in their family history because they bought the current farm that they're on now in 1912 it was they were found during the salmon spawning season the year before they bought the farm uh i found it very interesting that these people were observant enough well it, it was family history it wasn't it wasn't public history uh later on uh millie and her father uh grover i think that's i think i can't remember for sure uh, they reported uh, uh, man-like tracks around their farm and it was went to the police and pretty soon uh, one of the local TV stations were out. And then eventually they, the, the thing was hanging around the farm. They saw the tracks in the mud, they saw the tracks in the snow. Finally the BBC, British Broadcasting Company, came out and filmed her and her, and, uh, her father and a gentleman named uh, Glenn Thomas. Uh, Glenn Thomas was a Estacada area resident, and he was a logging road building contractor. Uh, he, in 1967, October 1967, saw three of these creatures on a rock talus high in the Clackamas, and they were building an approach road, a logging road, uh, and they were digging out large rocks and they finally found golden mantle ground squirrels uh little squirrel like rodents and they ate them head guts and all he said uh so the bbc had uh, that and i i was able to get a copy of that recording i couldn't keep it and i couldn't record it but i was able i was allowed to look at it so that was the start of the of the uh real history of the uh in the book is the Kiggins residence.
1: At his reading at the Lucky Lab, Joe spoke about some early surveyors and their wacky metaphors.
3: But there's also an Ogre Creek to the east of the uh, uh, Bull of the Woods wilderness area. It drains into the Colawarsh. It's not Ogre Creek. Ogre Creek, meaning in this case Red Standstone, is a creek about two miles north of Ogre Creek. Uh, John Glenn and Russ Lockman—they're very familiar with that area. Garrett, I think, has been down there too. Uh, whatever caused a surveyor to name it Ogre Creek can only be left to speculation. The uh, there's a creek in the current town of Detroit. The old town of Detroit was flooded when when the dam filled. That creek coming off the. Uh, Western slopes, lower western slopes of Mount Jefferson is named Monkey Creek. It was named prior to 1900. This would indicate on a historical basis these surveyors knew much more than what about the wildlife and what they documented.
0: So tell me about some of the odd place names in Oregon. Uh, there's Tarzan Springs, there's Ogre Creek, lots of skookums, and so on. And uh, y- you have an interesting theory on some of these.
3: Oh, well, Doug, you've you've read the book, it sounds like. Thank I, you. I have, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Tarzan Springs is an interesting one. Uh, in about 1923, 1924, uh, the area was first surveyed and it was it was completely primitive at the time nothing more than uh native american footpaths and trading route paths i decided to uh find out how tarzan springs got its name so over a series of about 15 months in writing united states forest service and several different offices and finally the usgs a lady called me and said uh she said, "Joe, you." Uh, she said, I, "Can I talk to you?" And I said, "Sure, of course you can." And uh, she was from, a, I believe, Colorado Springs USGS Records Retention Center. She said, to "Your request. Normally, we." She said, "We wouldn't even, because I didn't do it in freedom of information level. What I did was as a polite, interested citizen." She said, "Normally, this kind of thing is regarded as a fishing expedition, and we wouldn't do anything with it." But it caught our interest and we've been working on it as we could. She said, uh, you also realize that we're a big bureaucracy and there's many levels of approval that have to be taken before, granted before uh, a piece of paper flies out or comes out of here. I said, yes. So she said, "What I'm going to do is tell you the story, but I'm not going to, we are not going to back it up in writing. She said, in an old surveyor's logbook, there was a notation uh that quote unquote we came upon an old prospector living with a group of apes i i wrote that part down very carefully and asked her to repeat it a couple times an old prospector living with a group of apes in the early 1920s tarzan the ape man the book had just come out and was wildly popular uh so they named it tarzan springs the photograph of Tarzan Springs, I'll give your audience, is that I use in the book is one that I use for a geographic reference. The actual springs are over the ridgeline right behind it. Uh, but it's a good place for people to recognize as they drive along. there in the general area.
0: And then this Skookum business, too. I mean, that's, uh, that's all yeah. over Washington and Yeah,
3: or. Skookum. scooping is one of the many names for these things. Uh, uh, there's... Uh, Memelous is also memelous means in various contexts uh, place of evil or place of evil spirits or place of evil beings uh skookum has got similar connotations uh the, yes there uh there's and then there's the indian name for devil and up in uh, upper clackamas there's devil's ridge devil's springs devil's peak uh a number of sco- skookum lake uh it's it's a uh, the Native American names for these wild creatures are pretty pervasive. But going back to Ogre Creek, this is important because I talked a, a little early on about these being hominids or pongoids, monkey-like. Uh, Ogre Creek is, is in the south part of the area flowing into the Kalawarsh. And it's not to be confused with Ogre Creek, It is, uh, Ochre Creek is about a mile and a half north of Ogre Creek. And Ogre is an obvious allusion. Just to the south of Ogre Creek, in 1953, when the area was, again, without roads, uh, a gentleman and his two friends, teenagers, late teens, hiked into Round Lake and had a rather fearsome encounter with one of these creatures. Uh... In Detroit, this is a new town of Detroit. The old town was flooded when they filled the dam. Uh, The creek in the middle of town coming off of Mount Jefferson is Monkey Creek. And Monkey Creek was named prior to 1900. Interestingly enough, a biologist acquaintance of mine wanted to uh, read the draft of this book about a year and a half ago. Maybe a little longer now. And he said, Joe, do you know what you have here? And I go, Well, probably not in the context of your thoughts, and he says, well, what you have here is a collection of stories, and they seem to be true, they ring true, and they specifically describe two different unclassified species up there, one being, for lack of a better word, man-like, walking on two legs, not very gregarious, and then another species being living more in the trees, being a gregarious colony-like group of, of monkeys so uh, that's a good question I appreciate it.
1: Joe also provides the Bigfoot enthusiast with some descriptions of everyday run-of-the-mill Sasquatch activities.
3: Now here is probably one of the uh, another major unique important find these are licked rocks see these rocks here Steve Kiley and I found these on the lower west face of Whalehead. When the Patterson-Giblin film was taken in October of 1967, the first thing they saw was a creature at the creek side licking rocks for nutrients. Okay, The creature in this case sat on a soft spot over here. This is the best picture we really have of this. Um, and it was taking rocks, lichen-filled rocks from this area here. You can see how they're stacked up naturally. Licking, licking them. We know That they are, they've been manually handled with one right hand lick, turned and put over here because the uh, lichen side was on the upside here. The clear side, the side that was uh, exposed to the sun, was underneath, so they've been turned over. This, I think, is very compelling as far as how our forest friends gain nutrients.
0: And then I want to chat a little bit about some of the famous sightings that John Green wrote about. And again, these are from Glen Thomas that you were talking about earlier, and you really kind of get in there and interpret the books, or interpret the sightings in your book. So, let's start with I think the uh first sighting was the bigfoot.
3: The f- the first the first Glen Thomas sighting Amazingly enough, was in the same month a, and within about the same week of, of the famous Bluff Creek film being taken. And that's where he saw the three of, three of them on a rock talus digging out squirrels, rodents, eating them like a banana. Uh, he ran into the—he saw them uh, three more times and clearly described eight different individuals— this is important for a little later on, another question you're going to ask me, I'm sure. And then he found, uh, uh, were footprints in the snow uh, later, about oh, uh, almost a year later, footprints in the snow and where they'd been eating grass. Right. So, so there was,
0: they were, they were the, the two females, right? He described their pendulous breasts. Yes.
3: Oh, yes. There's a famous female sightings uh, where he was, and we know pretty, very close to where that was. Uh, but a pendulous breast, uh, swollen genital area. She was itchy, maybe. She was rubbing. She was screaming. Yeah. Uh, uh, Amazingly enough, uh, there's another screaming incident in the book on Dixie Mountain uh, where it ceased after two sets of screaming hominids came together, and uh, undoubtedly for mating purposes. Uh, But... The, uh the Thomas I I don't interpret the Thomas sighting I was very honored that John Green allowed me to use them but we have a loosely knit group of what I call the Clackamas Sasquatchians who contributed to this book there's uh there's 13 of them, or 12 of them besides Cliff and I and one of them is Leanne McCoy who has had a connection with these creatures since her family lived in the woods when she was three years old uh, she has a very unique, th- and she interpreted uh, Thomas's actions as clearly a possibility of paranormal. Thomas go- refers to being in a dreamlike state. He refers to not knowing how he got to places. Uh, these are bizarre things that happen, and uh, and she interpreted that. I did make a comment that uh, Thomas does what most serious Sasquatch people do after you see one and that is spend an inordinate amount of time and money trying to recreate the experience and he did in fact spend a lot of inordinate amount of time and money trying to uh, see them again but he after, uh, after his last encounter I think it was January of 1969 I think that was, uh, that was it for him. So Green reports
0: the sightings, uh, looked into them quite a bit, uh, finds them credible. Correct. Oh
3: yes, uh, John Green and Re- the great Renee de who I had a chance to meet once and talk to, uh, and he allowed Renee allowed Steve and I, K- Kylie and I, to watch his copy of the Bluff Creek film as much as we wanted. And after two hours, neither one of us made it all the way through the film on this little viewfinder thing. And during that time he talked to each of us in turn as who wasn't on the viewfinder. Uh, that was in Larry Lund's famous and now defunct, unfortunately, uh, the house is demolished, uh, Bigfoot basement, Bigfoot museum. It was Renee was the only, he said, whatever you do, carry a camera, always have a camera with you. He, and he was much more pleasant man than, I'd been led to believe. He was a very nice man. I really enjoyed meeting Rene. And he died way too soon from uh, cancer. Uh, Anyway, uh, he and John Green wanted to investigate Glenn Thomas because they'd heard it partly through BBC uh, sources and whatever. So they uh, called Thomas or wrote him letters and arranged a meeting. And they drove down from British Columbia, and they they surprised him. They showed up on a Friday night uh, so that he didn't have time to prepare anything. And it didn't bother uh, Thomas. Was nonplussed. Uh, he just uh, he just said, "We'll leave tomorrow morning and get up there." And everything was as, as stated. And uh, and uh, it was uh, I thought a very brilliant bit of rep- of of reporting. Uh, John allows me to have, incidentally, I've got uh, copies of all of his reports, sightings, about 3,000 of them I have in my files, which uh, I also consider that a great honor.
0: Why is this area that you describe in the Oregon Bigfoot Highway, why is this such a seemingly hotbed of Bigfoot activity?
3: Well, it's not a hotbed. What it is is a compilation of 31 sighting reports going back to 1924. That is not over 1,100 or about 1,000-square-mile uh, area. That's not a real big hotbed. Uh, the idea, though, was that we were very careful. We did not use Internet-based reports. We didn't use a BFRO. Uh, we went through and, and dug up what we could. Uh, there is... Uh, only one report that is on the Internet that's in the book, but I heard it from the man that actually investigated it first, a friend of the project who I highly regard, we both highly regard, Dr. Uh, Henner Fehrenbach. Dr. Fehrenbach worked for 30 years, at approximately 30 years, at the Oregon Primate Center. And what he says, as far as we were concerned, were gold, and he gave us m- numerous pointers on, on what to look for and how to talk to people about them. So that, I, uh, I, I really uh, valued Henner's time.
0: So let's talk about numbers, population numbers. What are your thoughts on the size of the Bigfoot population in the area you're looking at?
3: Well, this is a very complex question. And uh, I, have, I have researched uh, small rural communities in, uh, in the South Sea Islands, above the Arctic Circle, uh and in in uh nearly extinct animal populations uh so there's there's when i when i give this estimate there's a background material that's beyond the scope of this interview but let's just use the closest approximation uh john green th- G- glenn thomas described eight distinct individuals to John Green, and we know the geographic area that was involved, which is about 200 square miles. Extrapolating that across the current wilderness areas, the Brighton Bush drainage, and the, and the Clackamas Ranger District going up to, road to the Highway 26, roughly. Uh, we come up with uh, about 32, 35 individuals extrapolating the Thomas sightings over the same geographical area comes up with 28 individuals. Uh, Amazingly enough, that's about enough for a local reproducing population of hominin. Uh, The migration routes are not imaginary. One of them was told to us by an elder on the uh, Warm Springs Indian Reservation, who said that they come by the reservation line on the Ridgecrest twice a year.
0: Tell us about the Bigfoot Migratory Highways.
3: Oh, that basically, uh, these are speculative, of course, but most animals have some kind of migration for either uh, either s- sustenance reasons or for mating reasons. Uh, of course, the great migrations are in Africa in our, in our time period. Uh, so I, I put together three based on sightings and one Native American report from the Warm Springs Reservation, uh, he said they travel our ridge line, the crest line, uh, twice a year, and then uh, there's a center possible center route, and then a route along an old Indian trail on the uh, west side of the Cascades, which is a very strong barrier. There's only in the uh, 50, roughly 50 to 60 square uh, linear miles that the uh, north and south so that the the uh, Bigfoot Highway is in the center of there's only two two roads that penetrate from the Willamette Valley into the into the interior of the Clackamas River drainage which uh, to give you an idea of how how uh, rough some of that country is
0: and then you, you talk about crossing the Columbia and so on, and a lot of people have a hard time with the idea of a of a Sasquatch swimming the Columbia, you know. But we uh, we see photos. Uh, buoy uh, Brewing put photos of herd of elk crossing the Columbia down by Astoria, you know, on the internet a little I while ago. Saw. Beautiful photos. Uh, it's, uh, does, does that seem like an impenetrable barrier
3: to you? I, it doesn't. It. I. I cannot. I'm a. I swim. I learned to swim when I was a youth. I was in the Marine Corps. I swam when I was in, the, in the, working with the Navy. Uh, we see channel, it's, it's a non-issue. Uh, these things can swim, and they can swim very powerfully, and uh, crossing the river is uh, probably a slight inconvenience to them. would be my guess. I don't really, I've spent a lot of time in the Wind River, uh, part of the Gifford Pinchot National Forest. I mean a lot of time. Uh, and I see it as there's well there's at least three natural crossing points, one near Hood River, one near Wind River, and one probably a little closer to Portland. What all this means is that when you read this uh, book, it's uh, it is not mined from the internet. We're talking we're talking Oregon history here, Oregon history gathered from interviews. And actual experiences, or very reputable print reports. I quit writing at what, what I call 100 references. Although there are a few more references than that, they uh, those references are in something I call Area 52. We had one of our 12 Saskatchewans besides Cliff and I, who is very interested in the paranormal. Uh, The gentleman's not here now. I mean he's not physically here now, today. Uh, But he managed to gather together and put me in connection with uh, people that gave us a total of 12 reports of uh, UFOs, uh, strange doings, otherwise. And so we put them in a thing called Area 52, which are not, which is not, the totals in there, the sightings are not included in the main sighting list or foot track find lifts. They're very entertaining.
0: You have a section of your book you call Area 52 so what we refer to as the woo woo shit in the big <laughs> in the bigfoot stories so to, and, and you you talked a little bit about that um you know with the the earlier stories that we we're discussing and it's this you know ufo's and bigfoots are dimensional shifters and there's some hypnotism going on and that sort of thing. How, how much credence do you put in I these i put stories? a
3: huge amount of credence do up. you
0: tell me tell me why and tell I'll me tell why, you, why you
3: buy into the woo woo shit uh i'll tell you why um uh, First, one of our Sasquatchians was really into that, and he gathered together 12 reports. I think I bumped in a couple. 12 reports along that line, and we decided to only use three to give an illustration of what that was about. He was very disappointed in us. However, if there's a second printing, then we might do something more with it. Uh, One of the the, uh, Area 52 reports is the uh, so-called shape-shifting it's where a man runs upon comes upon a woman who had been old uh, dressed in the old indian style uh... uh, pre-white coming arrival style uh, who is picking huckleberries and she refers the little people to him uh... the second uh... this the first item and we did it out of deference to the Woo-woo crowd, and it was kind of fun because the guy that told me the story, and he told it to me four times, and it didn't change very much. And he is a he's a highly paid professional man in Portland, Uh, and if I gave his name out, I'd undoubtedly be sued. Uh, But it's the uh, Star Wars connection, where he's fishing up Fish Creek, up near uh, Third Creek and uh, i knew that from his description he didn't, he didn't know third crick from ninth crick but uh, 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 uh saucer lands he's in the shadows taking a break they don't see him a bigfoot gets out of the bigfoot like being gets out of the saucer does some repair work talks to somebody up there inside apparently everything's fine he buttons up the hatch crawls up and away he goes the odd thing about this report was that uh, he the the struts he described were very small. Uh, it would be almost unthinkable. I I couldn't imagine even titanium being able to sustain the loads that would be involved with a large craft with people on it. And he 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 mentioned the struts. I had to prompt him twice, I think, but he mentioned the struts voluntarily. Uh, he saw no no markings on it. Now, here is where uh, you can take take it to the bank as far as me believing in some of this stuff. Uh, in Area 52 is an extensive night-long encounter we had with myself and two young men. They were both about 30. In fact, one turned 30 that night, and he wanted a memorable experience, and he really got it. But it was uh, everything from chattering in the trees to... Uh, to, uh, it was, uh I, I still can't believe it. We put out an offering jar of, of jelly that they'd gotten someplace in their travels to get out here. And we're sitting there watching it, and I would crack the lid just to see if somebody, you know, sometimes they'll come around and unscrew the lid and take a f- couple fingerfuls out, of peanut butter, whatever it might be, honey. Um... Uh, and we watched the lid unscrew right before us. And it fell to the side of the jar. And then it was like a little finger just tick, ticking it. And it shot, it moved twice over to the edge of the rock. And that rock is still there. It's non-moved. It's in a quarry. But that's just one of several things that happened that night.
0: And you talked about sasquatches with asthma. You gave a little interpretation about one of the,
3: the oh, group- that was an interpretation of the uh, one of the green sightings. Yeah, yeah, where yeah, the t- thing was wheezing. And yeah, the, yeah. I, I, I've got hay fever and mild form of asthma it's developed into over the years. Uh, but one of the witnesses in the Colawash that talked to John Green, not Glenn Thomas, he described a wheezing creature, and I just I just put a comment in. Maybe they're like us; they get hay fever, you know.
0: I'd like to think that's maybe that's kind of anthropomorphizing them or whatever the hell that word is, but you know, I I like to think of Bigfoots having asthma too, suffering through the same damn thing.
3: Well, I think, uh, I think, uh, I think Glenn Thomas mentions a wheezing or blowing through his lips or something of that nature. Uh, In the back, ladies and gentlemen, one of the things in this book, and I do not interpret it, but I go through. I went through and I made a Bigfoot characteristics list, and they just go through things like uh, aggression towards man, uh, the classic arm monster with its arms raised, uh, roaring. Uh, uh, to that, to the use of clubs to club salmon, we found spectacular. It's a photographs so of. I was stunned. Obviously, these clubs were is a tough place to get to. These clubs have been in use and the salmon were spawning and there was one of these things standing on the hill above us roaring its brains out it was really upset uh, so there's all kinds of characteristics in there that uh, that we've kind of dug out uh, and leaving it to you to the reader to interpret what what's going on in the book as you go through it you're going to find some some very unusual things very unusual some of these are unique to the literature and they're absolutely critical I believe to the development of a face scientific basis for these unclassified creatures
0: finally what is the state of the Bigfoot population in the Clackamas area what's the future look like for them
3: uh, that is virtually impossible to speculate on uh, I would say that we do know there have been many, some recent sightings, uh, very recent. Uh, they're still up there. I, I would say that it's a fairly stabilized population and, uh, our, our population estimate may or may not be accurate. We, we really need to have somehow talked them into coming out and be becoming known to man. Uh I, uh, I don't believe, especially if we can turn this into a preserve of some kind, I think you'll have a, a real good population resurgence to the point where the land can sustain it. Uh, and there is a limit on wild animals, uh, how, how many the land can sustain.
0: So th- it sounds optimistic, what you're saying. Y- you, you have a, an optimistic outlook.
3: I would say that if we don't clear-cut that forest, that we have a very good opportunity to maintain a population up there. And I want to make it very clear I'm not anti-logging. I am not anti-logging. And please put that in your radio show. What I am is to turn that part of the, the national forest into a preserve beyond the scope of logging and to turn it into a tourism spot which... Tourism brings in many more dollars than uh, than the logging business does. I uh, I think uh, I think that's been well founded. It's been shown numerous times.
0: Well, thanks so much for chatting with us today, Joe. And what what I'm hoping is that maybe you and I can go up onto the highway. <laughs> in the next few weeks, consider you can, yourself. You can show me a couple parts, and I can uh, record it and bring it back to the folks listening.
3: I would. I would be. I would. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. We'll we'll take the book
0: and we'll we'll go in there and and do that up. What do you think?
3: I think that's a great idea, and uh, since, as you know, I love to hear myself talk, you better have your ears ears polished. So
0: only if you promise to give us some more woo woo shit too <laughs> while we're up <out> there. <laughs>
3: I don't know if I can. uh, I'll I'll give you a couple more woo-woo episodes. Thanks a lot, Joe. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me.
1: There you have it, Ass Kickers. What fate awaits the resident historian as he hits the Oregon Bigfoot Highway with author Joe Bielert? Tune in soon for another episode of Kick-Ass Oregon History. To find out. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and remember you have just a few more days to help Kick Ass Oregon history win the best local podcast in Willamette Week's best of 2015. You can register to vote by going to our website first, orhistory.com slash votes. That will take you to Willamette Week, where you can create an account and vote for us in the Media Personalities category. We also ask that you spend some time and vote for our friends x-ray.fm and Eastside Distilling, who are also up for Best of Portland Awards in their categories. Voting ends June 30th, and on July 15th, we'll find out who has triumphed. So head on over to orhistory.com vote, and then vote for us in Willamette Week's Best of Portland 2015 survey. We'd very much like to win, and we'd appreciate you showing your support for us and the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORhistory.com. We hope that you agree that today's episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindberg. Citations are available on request. Kickass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. Follow us on Instagram at kick Oregon History. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kickass Oregon History in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at orhistory.com. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.
0: orhistory.com